welcome to the Once Again Podcast. On today's episode, we will be discussing Game of Thrones Season 1, Episode 5, The Wolf and the Lion. This episode is written by David Benioff and D.B. Wise, adapted from George R. R. Martin's A Game of Thrones, and directed by Brian Kirk. It premiered May 15, 2011, and had a viewership of 2.58 million. A brief synopsis, incensed over news of Daenerys's allies with the Dothraki, Robert orders a preemptive strike on the Targaryens that drives a wedge in his relationship with Ned. A captive Tyrion helps Catelyn, but receives a cold reception at the Eyrie from her sister, John Aaron's widow, Lysa. Sansa is charmed by the dashing Sir Loras Tyrell, aka the Knight of Flowers, and Arya overhears a plot against her father. And a brief reminder before diving into the episode proper, I just want to remind our listeners that in this series, each episode will be two parts. The first part will focus on the HBO series, and the second will be a book comparison. Obviously, at a certain point, the show completely divorces itself from the books, and with the book series unfinished at the time of this recording, Ashley and I will be giving our speculations and theories about where the books are going. Also, after recapping the episode, Ashley and I will engage in a full spoilers discussion involving later episodes and seasons of the show, as well as material from the books. We will alert you when we have reached the full spoiler section, so if at that point you want to skip to the end of the podcast, we understand. And finally, if you are unaware, Game of Thrones has a much more violent and adult-themed world than Once Upon a Time. We will be discussing subjects which some may find triggering and inappropriate for younger listeners. And so let's dive into the episode. I just want to say before we get to the first scene, the opening title credits changed in this episode to incorporate the location of the Eerie. Uh, I think Game of Thrones has one of the best opening title sequences, yeah. and that this episode was dedicated in uh, to the memory of production member Caroline Lewis Benoist, who had spent some months working on the production as an animal trainer. She passed away on December 29th, 2010 from swine flu. Swine flu? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How long ago that was. Yeah, that was... Had we known then. <laughs> yeah, but that would be a pipsqueak of a pandemic compared to what we get. But we go to scene one, where Eddard Stark leaves the Red Keep and crosses a bridge to reach the Torny Grounds. This goes right into scene two, where Eddard enters a tent to find a silent sister preparing Sir Hugh of the Vale for his funeral ceremony. Sir Barristan Selmy has stood vigil for Sir Hugh overnight, as part of the knightly tradition, because he had no one else. Sir Hugh also has no family in the capital. Barristan muses that it was bad luck for him to go up against the mountain at the first tilt. Eddard asks how they choose which knights will face one another, and Barristan tells him that they draw straws. Eddard wonders who holds the straws. In scene three, leaving the tent, Sir Barristan says, without rancor, that it was not so many years ago that they faced one another as enemies at the Trident. Eddard says that he is relieved that he never had to face him on the battlefield, as is his wife, as a widow's life would not suit her. Barristan tells him that he is being modest, as he has seen Eddard cut down a dozen great knights. Eddard says that his father thought Sir Barristan was the greatest knight he had ever seen, and did not know the man to ever be wrong about matters of combat. Sir Barristan says that Eddard's father was a good man, 
and what the Mad King did to him was a terrible crime. Quickly changing the subject, Eddard wonders how Sir Hugh was able to afford a full suit of armor, given that he had been a squire up to only a few months ago. Barristan says that it is possible John Aaron left him some money, and he's also heard that the king wants to joust today. Eddard says that that will not happen, and Barristan replies that the king gets to tends to get what he wants, and Eddard notes that if that were the case, they'd still be fighting in a damned rebellion. I like the scene between Ned and Barristan. I think it's interesting how um, now Barristan is talking to him about his father and everything, and Ned just quickly changes the subject. Like he's like, "So what's going on with Sir Hugh? Like, what, like how did he get this nice armor?" And like Barristan's trying to bond with this man uh, somewhat. Yeah. And Ned's just like, "Yeah." Um, so shutting that down completely. <laughs> what's up with yeah. Sir Hugh's armor? But moving right along into scene four, King Robert. I guess we should also mention that um, a, a difference here between the books and the uh, show is that Robert in the books doesn't want to compete in the uh, jousting tournament. He wants to compete in the melee. That they're yeah. ha- They don't have the melee in the show. And I believe it was like a 200-man melee or something yeah. like that. But it ends up being the same conversation where Ned's just like, no one's going to hit you. Yeah. <laughs> like... but, but it's also... But... In like a two hundred man melee, anything could have happened to yeah. Robert. Like, and that's kind that's of that's fact. Like, someone could have just stabbed him, and nobody would have even known it was that person. Like, the person could have just been. I think that's kind of walk away. Yeah, like, I think that's kind of what Cersei was banking on. Oh, hundred percent. Especially because she Cause isn't in the in the books. Isn't she like? Doesn't she? Tell she forbids him, like, him. Forbids him, which yeah. she knows is going to make him angry. Yeah, like, and want to do it all the more. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in scene four, King Robert is preparing for the field. His squire, Lancel Lannister, is unable to fit his armor onto him. Eddard arrives and tells Robert that he is too fat for his armor. Robert laughs, then asks Lancel why he is laughing and if he thinks it's funny. He says no, to which Robert responds by asking him if he didn't find the hand's joke funny. Eddard suggests that Robert should stop torturing the boy. Relenting, Robert tells Lancel to go and get the quote-unquote breastplate stretcher. After he leaves, Robert and Eddard wonder how long it'll take him to realize that there is no such thing. Eddard tells Robert that he has no business being on a horse, and Robert says that he wants to hit something. Eddard tells him that it is a waste of time because no one in the Seven Kingdoms would risk harming the king. Robert incredulously asks if that means that his opponents would let him win, and Eddard replies yes. Deflated, Robert admits that he is too fat for his armor. Eddard asks about Lancel, and Robert tells him that his wife insisted on fostering her young cousin onto him as a squire. Robert had John Aaron to thank for that marriage, with his advice that a match between himself and House Lannister would be important after the rebellion. Robert gloomily notes that he thought as king he'd be able to do what he wanted. He and Eddard go out to watch the day's jousting. No, Robert, a king has to be a king. He doesn't just get to do everything. Yeah. You know, it's funny. This makes me think of um, A Knight's Tale. Have you ever seen it? Yeah. And how, I forget what Heath Ledger's character's name was in that movie, but he earns the king's respect because he rode against him in the jousting tournament. Like, everyone else was backing out of it. Yeah. And then at the end of the movie, that king comes back and saves him or whatever. I don't really remember all the details. But it's sort of the opposite situation here. He's like... Well, actually, no. It's kind of the same thing. Like they're like, no, no one's gonna fight the future king. Like we, we yeah. have to get, but yeah, let's move on. 
In scene five, Eddard takes his place in the stands next to Sansa and asks where Arya is. Sansa replies that she is at her dancing lessons. The competitors arrive for the first joust. Sir Gregor Clegane and Sir Loras Tyrell, played by Finn Jones, the famous Knight of the Flowers, and the youngest son of the powerful House Tyrell, who has already famed himself from winning tournaments before. Sir Loras gives Sansa a red rose to her pleasure and exchanges a look with Lord Renly Baratheon in the stands. <laughs> I'm going to be explicit in my uh, note-taking here. Okay. <laughs> I literally was like, yeah, Loras gives Sansa a flower while I <laughs> Renly because that's what's really going on. It's not a look. <laughs> yeah, and Ren- Renly does give him a look, though, like, get on with it. Like, <laughs> right? stop it. <laughs> Move along. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Mm. And the knights take their positions before the king, and Gregor's horse becomes aggregated for some reason. The tilt begins, and Sansa worries for Sir Loras's health after Gregor killed Sir Hugh of the Vale the day before. Eddard tells her that Sir Loras rides well. In the stands, Littlefinger wagers a hundred gold dragons on the mountain. Renly takes the bet. Littlefinger ponders what he could buy with a hundred gold dragons. Maybe a dozen barrels of fine Dornish wine, or a girl from the pleasure houses of Lys. Renly suggests that he could buy a friend, and Littlefinger bows sarcastically at the joke. The joust begins, and Sir Loris unseats Sir Gregor, whose horse falls to the ground. Renly cackles in delight while Littlefinger grimaces at having lost the bet, while a brief smile crosses the hound's face at the sight of his brother's defeat. Renly tells Littlefinger that it is a pity, as he could have done with having a friend. Littlefinger asks Renly when will he be quote-unquote having his friend, indicating Loris. Renly stays silent. Littlefinger then puts his hand on Sansa's shoulder, removing it at a look from Eddard, and tells her that it was clever of Loras to ride a mare in heat, as it threw Gregor's stallion into confusion and made it easier for him to defeat the mountain. Sansa says that Loras would never do that, as it is dishonorable. Littlefinger agrees that there is no honor in it, but quite a a lot of gold. Sir Gregor finally gets up, furious. He summons his squire with his sword, and then decapitates his horse in a rage. He smashes Sir Loras off of his horse and attacks him with his sword. Loras is barely able to raise his shield in time. Before he can be overwhelmed, the mountain's brother, Sandor Clegane, jumps in the way, and the two exchange blows for several moments before the king orders them to stop. Sandor immediately kneels, and the mountain storms off the field in anger. Sir Loras thanks Sandor and holds his arm aloft to be cheered by the commoners. And... I have a note here saying a real horse could not, of course, be used for when uh, Gregor Clegane decapitates his mount. A complex puppet and a mixture of CGI was used to achieve the effect. And this is also a little bit different in the books, too. The hound is also competing in the jousting tournament, and it comes down to him and Sir Loras, and then Sir Loras is like, no, you just saved my life. You're the winner. Like, Mm -hmm. there you go. So actually, the hound gets the money and everything. Yep. Uh, we move on to scene six, where Catelyn Stark, Sir Roger Cassell, and several companions from the Inn at the Crossroads, including the singer Marillion and the sellsword who gave Tyrion his room, Bronn, are taking a hooded and bound Tyrion through a range of tall hills. 
Tyrion is unhooded, and he realizes that they are not on the king's road. He thought Catelyn was taking him to Winterfell, and she agrees that she said so, often and loudly. Tyrion realizes that his father will have people looking for him in the wrong place. There's no doubt at a handsome reward being offered for his safe return, and it is well known that a Lannister always pays his debts. Bronn notes this comment with interest. Tyrion also realizes that they are on the Eastern Road. Catelyn is taking him to see her sister, Lady Liza Arryn, to answer for his imagined crimes. That is, assuming the Shadowcats and the Hill Tribes don't kill him first. He asks Catelyn how long it's been since she last saw her sister, and she says five years. Tyrion says that Liza has changed, going from slightly touched before her husband's death to unhinged. He suggests Catelyn would be better off killing him where he stands. Catelyn says that she is not a murderer, but Tyrion says that neither is he, and what kind of imbecile would arm an assassin with his own blade? Sir Roderick suggests gagging him, but Tyrion asks why, and if he is starting to make sense. Yes, you are Tyrion. Yeah, <laughs> uh-huh. exactly. <laughs> and, you know, the, the assassin was armed by an idiot with his own blade, but it just wasn't Tyrion's blade. Suddenly, the party is attacked by a group of tribesmen from the hills. Several of the knights from the inn are killed, and Tyrion asks Catelyn to untie him so he can fight. She does so, and he overcomes one assailant, killing him with a shield of one of the fallen knights. The tribesmen are defeated, and Bronn, whose skills with a sword were most impressive, asks Tyrion if it was his first kill. When Tyrion nods, Bronn says that he needs a woman, always the best thing after a fight. Tyrion nods at Catelyn and says he's willing if she is. Such a good line. Yeah. It's one of the better lines. Yeah. And in scene seven, we're in the Winterfell courtyards, and Theon Greyjoy is practicing archery. Maester Lewin is teaching Bran about the great houses, the regions they control, and their words. First up are the Iron Islands. Bran accurately replies what their words are and what their sigil is. Uh, Theon cheerfully notes that the Ironborn are famed for their skills at navigation, archery, and lovemaking. Lewin dryly notes that they are also famed for failed rebellions. After accurately reporting the details for House Baratheon, Bran gets stuck on the Lannisters. He gives their motto as a Lannister always pays his debts, which Lewin points out as a common saying, but not their official motto, which is hear me roar. Bran runs through the mottos of House Martell and House Hornwood before saying the words of the Tullys, family, duty, honor. Lewin notes that it's his mother's house, as he is well aware, and he asks if they are playing a game. Bran angrily says that family comes first, and Lewin realizes Bran is upset by his mother's long absence. Lewin says that she had to go and will be back as soon as she can. Bran asks if he knows that for sure, or if he knows where she is today, and Lewin replies that he does not. Bran gloomily watches Theon shooting and says that he will never shoot a bow again. Lewin tells him that that is not the case. If Tyrion's saddle actually works, Bran could learn to shoot a bow from horseback. Dothraki boys start to learn when they are just four years old. This cheers Bran up. I have a few notes here. Theon stating that the Ironborn are famed for their skills at navigation, archery, and lovemaking. Uh, This is an empty bragging and very far from the truth. 
The Ironborn mostly sail from the Iron Islands to the coasts of the mainland for raiding, and that hardly requires any special navigation skills. Only a few of them have ever sailed further. The Ironborn prefer to engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat using swords and axes rather than shoot arrows from a safe distance. In fact, Theon is the only Ironborn who has ever seen shooting an arrow in the shell. In the books, the Ironborn shoot arrows at their opponents only on rare occasions. And the Ironborn have a negative reputation as reavers and rapists. They are definitely not famed as lovers. Just Same thing to Theon and the Ironborn, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, technically he should become their leader someday, but we'll get there when we when we get there. Although it isn't, nah, I, I don't even want to get into, that's a whole separate discussion. Um, but we'll go on to scene eight, where Theon invites the prostitute Roz to his room for the night, though strictly this is not allowed under the castle rules. When he tells Roz to be quiet, she laughs, saying that she thought he was an important person in Winterfell. Roz also tells him that he isn't the only nobleman in her life. Theon notices a gold medallion around her neck and guesses Tyrion gave it to her. He asks her about Tyrion's prowess in bed, and Roz replies that he is surprisingly good. She asks him if he is jealous, and Theon says no. The Greyjoys have been lords of the Iron Islands for 300 years, and there isn't a house in Westeros that can look down on them, not even the Lannisters. Roz innocently asks about the Starks. Theon says he's been Lord Stark's ward since he was eight years old. But Roz points out that that is just another word for hostage. Accurate. <laughs> yeah. Angry, Theon says that his father fought for, their fr for the freedom of his people. Roz teases him, saying that he is a very serious boy. Theon says that he doesn't want to pay for it. So Roz tells him to go and get himself a wife. Damn. Yeah. I love her so much, though. Yeah, she's definitely the best character that they added to the show. Um, yeah. She's not in the books at all, but um, she's definitely the best character that they made up for the show. It is interesting, too, how the Greyjoys are, well, and the Iron Islanders as all, but the Greyjoys are kind of looked down on from the other houses. Like, I find it so weird how the Tullys look down on so many other houses when the Tullys have only been in charge of the Riverlands since Aegon yeah. came, like, for 300 years as well. Like, it's not... Like, the Tullys are this ancient family, like the Starks yeah. or anybody else. Eh. Moving right along. In scene nine, in the corridors of the Red Keep, Arya is chasing a cat. In scene ten, <laughs> that's just all that there is. <laughs> Done. Yeah. Uh, in scene ten, Eddard is visited by Varys, who closes the doors and window to ensure that they cannot be overheard. Although those windows are just, you know, there's holes in them, but yeah. whatever. Uh, gotta close them anyway. Yeah. Um, he inquires about Bran's health, and Eddard replies that he will never walk again. Varys asks if his mind is sound, and Eddard says yes. Varys notes that he himself suffered an early mutilation, but that often the closing of one door can lead to the opening of others. He says that there is something important to tell Eddard, but if, he, if the wrong ears hear it, off would come his head. North or south, no one sings songs for spiders. He tells Eddard that King Robert Baratheon is a fool and doomed unless Eddard can save him. Eddard asks Varys why he has waited a month to tell him this, but Varys was unsure if he could trust him. 
He's been watching Eddard carefully and has come to believe that he is a man of honor. Eddard asks him what kind of doom the king faces. Varys replies the same sort of doom as John Aaron. Aaron was killed by the tears of Lys, an odorless, tasteless poison. Eddard asks who killed him, and Varys says that Aaron was a kind man and a trusting man with many friends, so there would be lots of candidates, but Sir Hugh was the most likely one. Eddard asks who paid Sir Hugh to have done it, and Varys says someone who could afford it. Eddard then asks why anyone would want to kill Aaron if he was so popular and had ruled as hand for 17 years, and Varys said that Aaron started asking questions. Bum bum bum. In scene 11, Arya chases the cat through the castle, down into the storerooms under the castle. There she finds the skulls of the Targaryen dragons, immense in size. Hearing people approaching, she hides behind the largest. Varys and Magister Illyrio Mopatis of Pentos pass by. Varys says that he has found one of the bastards and now has the book. The rest will come soon. Illyrio asks what he will do when he knows the truth, but Varys says he does not know. The fools tried to kill his son and botched it. The wolf and the lion will soon be at each other's throats, and war will come. Illyrio says that war is too soon. Can Eddard just be killed? Varys, says no, uh, Varys replies no, that this hand is not the other. Caldrogo will not make a move until his son is born, as is the way of the savages. He asks Varys to try and delay the onset of conflict, but Varys suggests that Illyrio could instead speed up things along with, with Drogo instead. Varys also says that the game now has more than two players, but Illyrio replies that, that it always did. After they leave via the entrance she just used, Arya escapes through a stairway leading downward into the bowels of the keep. And I just put a note here. Um, do you think we should discuss, or I think we should discuss this yeah, further probably. in the full this spoiler is, section? This is one of those yeah. things it's like, ooh, implications yeah. elsewhere. Yeah. So Because there's a lot going on that ultimately really doesn't get used in the show, but there's a lot of book material here that yeah. is fantastic. In scene 12, Varys finds Littlefinger in the throne room, admiring the Iron Throne. Varys says he admires Littlefinger's industry being the first to arrive for a small council meeting and usually the last to leave. Littlefinger suggests that Varys should come and visit his brothel that evening. The first boy is on the house. Varys tells him that he is confusing business with pleasure. Littlefinger says that his establishment caters for all inclinations. Varys says that he has heard the same, especially in the case of Lord Redwine, who likes his boys very young. Littlefinger says that he is purveyor of both beauty and discretion. Varys asks if it is true that Sir Melon of Tumblestone prefers amputees. Littlefinger says that all desires are valid for a man with a full purse. Varys says he has also heard of a lord with a liking for fresh cadavers and ponders how you'd go about producing fresh, beautiful corpses before they rot. Littlefinger notes that such a thing would not be in accordance with the king's laws, strictly speaking, and strictly speaking replies Varys. Littlefinger, feeling he has lost that round, asks Varys what happened to his testicles. Were they kept in a box somewhere? And Varys replies that he doesn't know, and it is a shame since they had been so close once. <laughs> uh, oh, I love it. Yeah, these two are, have the best exchange here. 
He asks Littlefinger how he's been since they last saw one another. But Littlefinger asks if he means since the last time Varys saw him or since he saw Varys. Varys says since the last time he saw Littlefinger, with eyes he owns, he was speaking to the hand of the king. They all have so much to discuss with Lord Stark. Growing serious, Varys says that if the Lannisters were behind the attempt on Bran Stark's life, and if the queen were to discover that Littlefinger had helped the Starks come to the realization because of his enduring fascination for Catelyn Stark, it would be an unpleasant situation. Littlefinger tells Varys that the last time that he saw him, he was talking to the Hand of the King, followed by a meeting with a quote-unquote foreign dignitary, presumably on council business. Varys is rattled by this news. Littlefinger says that he is not surprised that Varys has friends from across the Narrow Sea, as he is from there himself. Littlefinger indicates that he could tell Robert about this if he so choose. Their verbal sparring is interrupted by Renly, who tells them that the king is coming to the council meeting. Littlefinger is surprised, and Varys says that it is due to disturbing news from far away, and he is surprised Littlefinger has not heard. So I have a few notes for this scene, the first being that Varys tells Littlefinger Lord Redwine likes his boys very young. The current lord of House Redwine is Paxter Redwine, but there is no mentioning of in the novels that he is homosexual or a pedophile. It is unclear whether Varys was referring to Paxter or other members of his house. And then my personal note here is that I love this scene for the exchange between Varys and Littlefinger. They are equally clever, and with the Iron Throne, aka the prize, sitting in the background, it, it's just a beautifully shot scene. Also, it's nice that they're just sitting there proving that they know everything going on. Yeah, yeah, that they know each other so well and know each other's secrets and everything. Uh, it, it's, it's a good scene. This is what Game of Thrones is all about, or should be all about. In scene 13, Arya finds her way out of the Red Keep via a cave on the shore. She makes her way to her father's chambers. In scene 14, Arya is stopped at the gates of the Red Keep by two guards who mistake her for a street urchin and a boy. She tells them that she is the daughter of the Hand of the King and gets them to let her pass. I love that exchange. Like yeah. They, they say, oh, do you need a smack on the head? And she's you like... You know, it just says, it proves early that, like, people think she looks like a boy because, obviously... Yeah. Well, in this world, boys also have long hair. Yeah. Um, where more traditionally in our world, boys usually have short haircuts and yeah. everything. But she's also, you know, prepubescent and yeah. covered in dirt and everything like that. Yeah. But, you know... Um, and she's, she doesn't dress in, a, in gowns and stuff. She, yeah. Yeah. So it's easily... But I just love her, like, where she says, like, or um, now go get my father, or do you need a smack on the head? Like, that's yeah. great Arya stuff there. In scene 15, Eddard admonishes Arya for her absence, saying that he had half his guard out looking for her. Which, dumb, dumb move, Ned. You can't, you can't afford to be sending half your guard places. Um... Arya reports that she overheard from Varys and Illyrio, but she doesn't know their names, uh, but has garbled it up. Eddard found a bastard, and the wolves are fighting the lions and something to do with a savage. Eddard is bemused. Jory Cassell reports that a knight's watchman has come to see Eddard. Yorin says that he was coming for prisoners and street urchins who might want to make a life in the knight's watch, but there is another reason he is here. Yorin knows Eddard's brother Benjen, and it is for his sake that he rode his horse near to death to get to Eddard first, 
as the news will be all over the city tomorrow. He suggests that they talk privately, and Eddard sends Arya off with Jory. Uh, so I wrote down here that, you know, it's dumb of Ned to give away half his household guard to look, look for Arya, because he's in King's Landing. He, he, he literally just had Varys tell him that people yeah. might try to kill him. And then I also wrote down that uh, Ned says to Yorin, did Benjen said, send you? And I was just like, hmm, I wonder what message Ned thinks Benjen yeah. could have had for him. Like, what what is going on with also, those two? I have something to say here in regards to Eddard being, like, bemused by what Arya's saying. Because she's, like, you know, just giving him jumbled words. Shouldn't you think it's weird that your daughter knows you went and saw a bastard and it's, like, bringing up the wolf and the lion? Like, those are things that should make you go, uh-huh. uh-huh. Right. But as we've established in lots of episodes, Ned is dumb. I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also Jory's there, too. Like, surely some one of them could have been like... Yeah. No. But uh, in scene 16, as they leave, Arya asks Jory how many guards her father's had, uh, her father has in King's Landing. He replies, 50, and she asks uh, them not to let anyone kill him, and Jory agrees. In scene 17, Yorin tells Eddard that his wife has taken Tyrion Lannister prisoner. Very short scene, moving right along. Yeah. In scene 18, riding through the Vale of Arryn, Catelyn Stark's party is met by a group of knights of the Vale, led by Servardus Egan, played by Brendan McCormack, the household guard captain at the Eyrie. Uh, Vardis asks why Tyrion is with them, and Catelyn replies that he is their prisoner. Which I always think is so, like... <sighs> Granted, um, Tyrion in the books looks much more distinctive than Tyrion on the show, but it, it always just makes me laugh that people just know who... I, I guess Ser Vardis could have seen him while he was down in King's Landing working yeah. for Jon Arryn or whatever, but it, like as soon as people see... This blonde-haired uh, short man, they're like, oh, it's Tyrion Lannister. <laughs> like, what? what is he doing here? They ride towards the Eyrie. Tyrion, impressed, says that it is supposedly impregnable. Bronn laughs and says that with ten good men and climbing spikes, he'd impregnate the bitch. Tyrion laughs and says that he likes Bronn. And I, I actually like the way that the Eyrie kind of looks in the show. It, it's very different from how it's supposed to look from the books, but I do enjoy the way that it looks. Uh, in scene 19, walking through the Red Keep, Eddard is intercepted by the royal steward, who tells him that he is summoned to a small council meeting. The king himself is in attendance. Eddard, worried, asks if the meeting is about his wife. The puzzled steward says no, it's about Daenerys Targaryen. In scene 20, at the, at the small council meeting, Robert announces that Daenerys is pregnant. She and her unborn child must die, as must Viserys. Eddard warns Robert that he will dishonor himself forever if he does this. Robert explodes in fury, telling Eddard that he has seven kingdoms to rule, and honor does not come into it. It's fear and blood that keeps the peace. Eddard says that that makes them no better than the, ma than the Mad King, infuriating Robert even more. Eddard wants to know where the information came from, and Varys says from Sir Jorah Mormont, who is advising the Targaryens, Eddard is surprised that they would commit murder on the word of a traitor and a criminal. Robert asks, what if he is right? And Daenerys has a son who can lead a Dothraki army against the realm. 
Edard replies that the narrow sea still stands between them, and he will fear the Dothraki when their horses can learn to swim hundreds of miles. Robert is incredulous that Edard's conclusion is that they do nothing. He then asks the council to give counsel to Edard. Varys says that what they consider is vile, but as governors of the realm, they must sometimes do vile things. If the gods grant Daenerys a son, the realm will bleed. Pycelle says that he bears no ill will uh, personally, but the realm will suffer if the child is born. Towns will burn and tens of thousands will die. Better uh, that she is killed now to spare death and destruction on a grander scale later on. Renly simply says that they should have had them both killed years ago, while Littlefinger says that they should cut her throat and get on with it. Eddard tells Robert that he will not support this. He followed Robert into war twice, with no doubts or hesitation, but he will not follow him into this. Robert angrily snaps that Eddard is the king's hand. He will do as commanded, or Robert will find another. At that, Eddard removes the badge of office and leaves it on the table in front of an astound Robert, wishing his replacement good luck and remarking that he thought Robert was a better man. Furious, Robert orders him to leave and go back to Winterfell before he takes his head as a traitor. And my only note here is Ned's uh, line to Robert saying, I followed you into war twice, refers to Robert's rebellion and the Greyjoy rebellion. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a good scene. No, it just proves that Ned is way too honorable of a man, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, logically... They are saying the correct thing. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the fact that they're like, but we're doing it for the realm. Yeah. Um, but we move on to scene 21, and Eddard makes preparations to leave, but is visited by Littlefinger. Littlefinger tells him that the king was quite upset with him, and the word treason was mentioned. Littlefinger tells Eddard that if he is still in the city at nightfall, he could take him to see the last person. He could take him to see the last person to see John Aaron alive. Eddard hesitates, but then agrees. He asks Jory to bring his two best so- swords and station the rest of his guards outside Sansa and Arya's rooms. In scene 22, in the High Hall of the Eyrie, Lady, Lady Liza Aaron, played by Katie Dickey, gives her new, guests a fr- uh, her new guests a frosty reception. She is annoyed that Catelyn brought Tyrion to the castle without her permission, endangering them all. Tyrion and Catelyn are distracted by the unedifying sight of Liza's young son, Robin, played by Lino Faccioli, and the titular Lord of the Vale, still suck, uh, sucking at her breast despite being many years too old for it. Uh, such the most uncomfortable thing. Yeah, um, it's creepy. Uh, Liza then tells Robin that his aunt has done a very bad thing. She then asks, asks Tyrion and Catelyn if they agree that her son is beautiful and strong. Her late husband knew that, as his last words were, the seed is strong. Um, something, another change that they made from the book to show is that they just gave Robert Aaron the name Robin. And I like, like, it makes yeah. it a little bit, because we have so many Roberts and Johns yeah. and, you know, just running around. Um, Liza then tells Robin that his aunt has done a very bad thing. Catelyn is puzzled by Liza's attitude, since she wrote to her about the Lannisters warning her. Uh, since she wrote to her about the Lannisters warning her, 
Liza says that she wanted Catelyn to stay away from them, not bring one to the very heart of the Vale. Robin then asks if, if Tyrion is the bad man, and amused at his small stature. Liza says that Tyrion murdered her husband. Tyrion is surprised to hear how busy he has been. Liza is annoyed that he thinks this is funny, as the knights present would gladly die for her. Tyrion suggests that if any harm comes to him, his brother would certainly make sure that they did. Robin tells him that no one can hurt them in the Eyrie. He says that he wants to see the bad man fly. Liza says that this is possible. Catelyn says that Tyrion is her prisoner and will not be harmed. Liza agrees, suggesting that her guests should be shown comfortable quarters. Tyrion is thrown into one of the Eyrie's cell, uh, sky cells by Mord, played by Carrion Birmingham. Rooms which are open on one side with a sheer drop to the valley floor thousands of feet below. And I have one note for the scene and that uh, Katie Dickin, who plays Liza Aaron, later said that she hoped viewers were aware that she wasn't actually having uh, Robin Aaron suckle at her breasts as Liza disturbingly never weaned her son. Uh, she was wearing a prosthetic breast over her undergarments. Yeah. Which is good to know. <laughs> yeah, considering the entire scene is just kind of creepy. Yeah. I mean, I assumed naturally that that wasn't what was actually yeah, happening. But... but also, I will say that, like, the uh, sky cells are probably one of the more interesting yeah. looking well, thing, like, the things. Er- the yeah. eerie itself, and uh, the moon door especially. I know that George R. R. Martin actually liked the change of the moon, moon door being on the ground. Because in his books, the moon door is just a door in the wall. Yeah. Like, it, it's just a regular door that they open, and there's, it's just open. But he actually liked the change of them having it on the ground. He thought that was uh, a better idea. I, I like yeah. that change, too. In scene 23, Sir Loras Tyrell and Lord Renly are in Renly's quarters. Loras is shaving Renly's chest for him. Renly tells him about the small council meeting and Robert's decision to kill Daenerys. An ugly choice, but necessary. Renly tells Loras that Robert will rant for a few days, but not punish Eddard, as he loves the man. Uh, Loras thinks Renly is jealous. Renly says that Robert and Stannis, his other older brother, think that no one is a man unless they've been to war. Loras seems to half agree to Renly's amusement. Renly asks him how much Loras' father paid for his elaborate armor, and how many wars he's fought in. Renly says that Loris is a gifted cells, uh, is a gifted swordsman, but Loris says that it is not a gift. It's something he had to practice every single day. Renly says that he could do the same and still never be as good as Loris. Renly says that Robert was rather dis- distasteful about the decision to kill Daenerys, as he could swear every time he talked about killing the girl, the table lifted six inches. Loris says that it is a shame that he cannot muster the same enthusiasm for his wife. Renly points out that he does have a lust for her money. Renly grants that the Lannisters do have an outrageous amount of money, uh, despite being unpleasant in every other aspect. Loris points out that he also has an outrageous amount of money. Renly agrees, but not as much as the Lannisters. Renly is grumpy because Robert is going to be taking him hunting. Last time they went out, they were in the cold and wind for two weeks while Robert looked for something to kill. Loris tells Renly that he would make a wonderful king. His father could bankroll the claim, and Loris would fight for him. Renly points out that he is fourth in line of the secession, but Loris says that Joffrey is a monster, 
Tommen is far too young at eight, and Stannis has the personality of a lobster. (laughs) 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 Very astute. Um, And Loras says that Renly is kind and just, but also resolute when needed, and does not love killing for the sake of it. So I have a couple notes here. This is the first mention of Stannis Baratheon, King Robert's younger brother and Renly's elder, who does not appear until next season. Renly states to Loras that he is fourth in line to the throne, behind Robert's sons, Joffrey and Tommen, and Renly's older brother, Stannis. This excludes Robert's daughter, Mycella, and uh, Stannis' daughter, Shireen, who in a normal lordship could inherit ahead of their father's younger brother, such as Renly. The royal succession laws for the Iron Throne are, however, slightly different from those of normal lordship. After a civil war almost 200 years ago between uh, Renea Targaryen and her younger brother Aegon II, the royal succession laws were revised to put female heirs behind all possible male ones. These laws apply to most of the regions of Westeros except for Dorne and the Iron Islands. Yep. Which I think that's what the show House of the uh, Dragon's going to be about, if I remember correctly. Um, the Targaryen Civil War. Yeah. But moving right along, we get to scene 24, where Queen Cersei visits her husband, telling him that she is so sorry that his marriage to Ned Stark did not work out. <laughs> so sorry, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Robert tells her that he is glad that he could at least make her happy. Cersei asks if it is wise to lose Stark out over this. Without a hand, the realm will fall to pieces. Robert asks if this is the part where she suggests her brother for the job. Cersei replies uh, replies no, that Jaime is not serious enough. For all of Stark's other qualities, he was serious enough for it. Robert does not know if it was worth it. He does know that if the Dothraki invade Westeros, he does not think they can stop them. Cersei points out that the, the Dothraki do not have ships, armor, discipline, or siege weapons. Robert says that it is interesting when she opens her mouth and her father's words come out. Cersei asks if her father is wrong. Robert says that if the Dothraki land, the logical course of action would be to uh, retire behind the walls of their castles and cities. However, the Dothraki would simply burn, loot, enslave, and rape their way across the countryside, destroying crops and driving off livestock. In that case, how long would it take before the people of Westeros decide that Viserys Targaryen was their rightful king after all? Cersei says that they outnumber the Dothraki, but Robert replies that one real experienced army united behind one leader with one purpose is worth more than five different armies fighting for different leaders. The Seven Kingdoms' unity died with the Mad King. Now all the, war- all the lords want something different. Tywin Lannister wants to own the world. Eddard Stark wants to bury his head in the snow. And all Robert wants to do is drink. Robert says that the realm has become a land of backstabbers, money grabbers, and arse lickers. He does not know what holds it together. When Cersei replies, our marriage, they laugh at the absurdity of it. They share a drink over the idea that hate can hold a marriage together for 17 years. Cersei unexpectedly asks what Lyanna Stark was like. Robert, surprised, asks why she is asking this now, having never asked about her once before. Cersei explains that at first, 
It was in hope that if she didn't mention Liana, Robert's grief over her memory would fade away. When that didn't happen, Cersei says simply that she didn't want to give him the satisfaction of thinking she cared about his pain. She asks now, because there is no more damage that Lyanna Stark's ghost could do to them that they haven't done to each other already. Robert tells Cersei that he can't even remember what Lyanna looked like. Lyanna was the one thing that that he always wanted, but someone took her away from him, and Seven Kingdoms couldn't fill the hole that was left behind. Cersei tells Robert that she did have feelings for him at one point, even after they lost their first child for quite a while. Robert admits that he knew that, that Robert admits that he knew that. Cersei asks if it was possible that they could have ever been more. He hesitates before saying no, and then asks if that makes her feel better or worse. She replies that it doesn't make her feel anything at all, and leaves. So, this is the second and last time in the show that Cersei mentions the boy that she and Robert had following the King's Road. That confirms that she was not lying to Catelyn in order to appear sympathetic and thus removes the suspicion from her. And the scene between Robert and Cersei was written at the last minute because the rough cut of the episode was running short and filmed in post-production reshoots, but turned out to be one of the writer's uh, favorite scenes. And personally, this is my favorite scene, not only for season one, but the whole series. It is a really good scene. It's very raw, I feel like, mm-hmm. for both of these characters. And just everything, like the, the whole Robert saying, you know, what what's the bigger army? And Cersei saying, you know, five, or bigger number, five or one. And she says five, and he does the whole thing, five, one, and he has the fist. Um, it's just a great scene. I, you know, I loved it the first time I saw it in season one, and now that the show's well over and done, it's my favorite scene from the whole series. I was disappointed to find out that it wasn't originally in there, that it was put in in post-production, but hey, it's still my favorite scene. So, At scene 25 in Littlefinger, Littlefinger's Brothel, Eddard meets Megan, uh, played by Antonia Christophers, a young prostitute with a baby daughter named Bera. And the, unfortunately, the baby actress wasn't credited. Um, Me- Damn them. <laughs> yeah. Megan had slept with King Robert, and the daughter is his bastard. She wants to see the king again, and, uh, and for him to know that the child is well. She tells Eddard that John Aaron came to see the child, uh, came to see that the child was in good health. Eddard sees the child is healthy and promises that she will want for nothing. Going into the next room, Eddard asks Littlefinger what he knows about Robert's bastards. Littlefinger says that Robert has a lot more than Eddard. As for why Aaron was tracking them all down, perhaps he was making sure that they were all cared for, as Robert had become, as Robert had been overcome by fatherly love. Uh, Eddard is dubious. He leaves, having to call Jory twice when he is distracted by one of Littlefinger's girls. <laughs> Poor Jory. He yeah. just wants to have a good time. Yeah. Uh, he, he deserves it, too. Um, no, he really does. Yeah, if, if I'd already just left Jory there with the girl, poor Jory. Because in the next scene, scene 26, Eddard, Jory, and the two Stark guards, uh, Harold and Will, who both those actors were also unaccredited, leave the brothel to find Jamie Lannister and a, deta- a detachment of 16 Lannister guards waiting for them outside in the street. Jamie asks where his brother is, 
and Eddard replies that he was taken prisoner at his command. Jamie and his men draw their weapons. Littlefinger leaves, saying he will bring the city watch. Eddard points out that if Jamie kills him, Tyrion is a dead man as well. Jamie agrees and orders his men to kill Eddard's guards instead. Jory slays two of the Lannister guards before facing Jamie, who kills him with a single dagger thrust to the eye. Eddard defeats three Lannister guards before he and Jamie cross swords. Jamie is surprised at Eddard's strength and speed, despite being older, and seems delighted to fight an enemy who actually poses a threat. The fight is interrupted when one of the Lannister guards spears Eddard through the leg. Annoyed at being interrupted in the middle of the best fight he's had for years, Jamie knocks out the guard and leaves on his horse, telling Eddard that he wants his brother back. Eddard collapses in the courtyard. It's so crazy to me that Jamie's like, oh, I said such a good fight, though. Yeah. Don't you ruin this for me. Yeah. Well, I, I mentioned in our uh, previous show episode how I liked the exchange between Jory and Jamie because um, of what happens in this episode, and this is it. Like, um, how Jory mentioned to Jamie specifically when they were fighting in the siege in Pike, how he almost lost an eye to one of the Greyjoys, and then... Yeah. Jamie kills him in this episode by stabbing him through the eye. Like, it's just like, oh, uh, yep, Jamie Lannister did that on purpose. He could have killed him a million different ways. But yeah. he's like, oh, yeah, this guy, the, the whole, he almost lost an eye thing. Ha ha ha. But it's also, I mean, I didn't know these characters the first time I was watching it. It was just awesome to see Jamie and Eddard clashing. Yeah. And Jamie being like, oh, this is a real fight. Like, I might actually have a challenge. You know, we hear other characters say that... Uh, Northerners, even though they're not knights, or one northerner is worth ten southern knights yeah. and everything like that. So, and there's plenty of fights where Eddard was overwhelmed in the books and came out on top somehow that we don't really yeah. know all the details yet. But um, yeah, and I, you would think. Well, let's let's. I'm gonna say we're going into full spoilers here, folks, because I want to bring up some book material. Yeah. So, uh, full spoilers. You would think that um, Jamie would be excited to fight Eddard because supposedly Eddard killed Arthur Dane, the greatest swordsman yeah. who ever lived. So you would think like Jamie would be like, oh, he killed Arthur Dane? Well, let me see what he's made yeah. of, <laughs> you know? But, and since we're in full spoilers now, let's talk about uh, my notes here from the full spoilers. Uh, the title is drawn from the dialogue between Varys and Illyrio. It refers to the sigils of House Stark and Lannister, respectfully. Of course, the lion and the wolf, or the wolf and the lion, excuse me. The first, this episode has the first mentions of House Martell, the rulers of Dorne, uh, the southernmost of the Seven Kingdoms. Sir Barristan Selmy is not present at the meeting of the small council, and in the parallel book scene he is. In season three, the episode titled Kissed by Fire, it is, it is explained that traditionally the Lord Commander of the King's Guard has a seat on the council, but Selmy was excluded because Robert did not want advice on how to govern from a Targaryen loyalist, let alone one who killed a dozen of his friends. Selmy did not mind since he hated the politics anyway. And as things turned to be, Varys and Pycelle who pointed out that either Daenerys die, died or many innocent people would, were right. Ned, who objected to killing her and did not care about all the consequences, 
was really acting like a quote-unquote honorable fool, as Robert called him. That's in reference to the yeah. final season. Um, there was something else that we discussed earlier that I wanted to bring You want to talk about the scene with Varys and Illyrio? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So the show completely cuts the young Griff slash Aegon slash Fagon yeah. uh, storyline. Uh, they kind of give some of its aspects to Jon Snow. Um, but it, it is it is interesting because here they still could have gone with that plot, which I think is a very big plot that they skipped out on. And that's what Illyrio and Varys were really planning. The whole t- like They wanted to have the realm be in complete chaos, you know, having the Starks and the Lannisters fight each other, have um, Daenerys and Viserys then invade, and when everyone's at their weakest, then send over Aegon and have him clean up everyone else, like, have yeah. him, have, and have him sit on the Iron Throne at the end. So it is interesting that they included this scene. I, I, it still works for the show having Varys secretly want one of the Targaryens to come back and be on the throne, but... Like they did in the show, but whatever. It doesn't work the same way. No. Yeah, yeah. I really wish Aegon had been included on the show, but what are you going to do? <sighs> you know, they decided that it was that too, wasn't a thing. Too much Chewbacca, as some of our college professors might yeah, say. Yeah, too much Chewbacca. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Shout out to you, Dr. Kuhar, wherever <laughs> you are out there. Anything else you'd like to discuss about this episode? No, or sh- okay. I think we're good. All right, well, let's go into the outro. That concludes this week's episode of the Once Again Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Any questions, comments, or critiques can be addressed to our email at onceagainpod at gmail.com. Follow us on our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram, onceagainpod, all one word. If you are feeling generous and would like to contribute to the podcast, we have several tiers available on patreon.com slash onceagainpod. Also, a like and a share would be greatly appreciated. Thank you and have a wonderful day. And remember, we will entertain you. We will always entertain you. Rumpelstiltskin always says that magic comes with a price. But for this price, you can get a nice piece of jewelry. Use code ONCEPOD for 10% off your first order at Unusual Magic Jewelry on Etsy. Click the link in the description.